Good morning. morning. Thought I would start this morning with a little bit of story. It took me back a few years. Um, a while ago, I uh, I had had a really long week of several long nights. You know what I'm talking about? Like I was, it was at the end of like a mission trip for me, and I was that good long like mission trip tired. You know what I'm talking about? This means yes. Like maybe some of us have felt that volunteers from VBS. Maybe you, maybe that VBS week tired, right? So I came down from upstairs and I came down to the, to the kitchen to meet my family for breakfast and I immediately went to the coffee makers. That's what you do when you're mission trip tired, right? And, uh, and I made myself a cup of coffee and it was a black coffee morning, you know? And if I'm honest, I'm finding more of those than not lately, right? And so I took my cup of coffee, went over, sat down at the table and... Uh, and I, I greeted my family, and I watched my middle child staring at me. It's, it's always the middle child, right? <laughs> Every time, it's always the middle child. And so I, I'm sitting there, and Cannon, and get, let me give some context to this just so you understand. Cannon is my son who is the, uh, like, adrenaline junkie, sports enthusiast um, kind of kid that, like, you need to watch your roof all the time because he might be trying to jump off of it kind of kid. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, he went to see his grandparents a few years ago, and they had just found, like, an eight-foot rattlesnake in their garden, and we were sending him to go visit. And we we're like, Cannon, what happens if you come up on a rattlesnake, you know, and it's trying to warn you? He's like, I'll stab it with my pocket knife in the eye. You know, like, this kid, this kid, right, is, is looking at me, and I know he wants to say something, and he just says, Dad... What are all those like lines and those big baggy things underneath your eyes right now? Why do you have those? He is brutally and painfully honest at times. You know, he's not the kid that delivers news real well. And, uh, and I just looked at him and I'm flooded with like a million responses. Things I could say like ministry and fatherhood. And I just kind of looked at him. And I thought about all he'd put me through in the time he'd been on the planet. And I said, Cannon, because I'm your dad, I have these lines, uh, these bags. And he's like, I said, it's because I am your dad, Cannon. He looked at me wide-eyed, smiling, bouncing, jovially just spoke back. And he goes, and I'm your son. It got me thinking, and I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, all the men out there. I want to say uh, really happy Leader Day to all those out there. Maybe you are like I was. Maybe you're in a single parent home. Maybe, maybe you're a mom that's just trying to play both roles. Let me just say happy Leader Day to anyone who is leading because the mantle of leadership has been put in that person's life, and fathers often have to take it up. It got me thinking, though is I thought about all that Cannon put me through in life, which I love Cannon dearly, and I, I love the fact that he has curiosities and his gifts, and he wants to push the boundaries of both reason and physics, you know? He wants, to, he wants to do that in his life because God's put that in them, and I want to encourage it. Loving, loving rebuke and life-like uh, lessons will come in time, but those always come from a place of love, Right? It got me thinking how much we put our Heavenly Father through and how much, how much we, we 
challenge him, whether willingly or unwillingly, and how often he pacifies us, comes to us and welcomes us back into his arms, even if we've disobeyed unwillingly or willingly. How many of you are grateful that he's just the God of a million chances, right? And this morning, um, I got to thinking about one of the things my kids have come to dread, okay? You know, on Father's Day. How many of you have ever heard of the family meeting? You know, I'll tell my kids, hey, it's time to have a family meeting. Everyone's like, oh, dad's going to yell, you know? Like, oh, oh, geez, you know? I don't think it has to be that way, though. I don't think it has to be family meeting. It's just a time for dad to get out all his frustrations. I think, I think family meeting can be a time where we lovingly have the father come in and, and speak to us and rebuke us. And how many of you, have you know that person in your life who could just tell you things? Like they can tell you even the worst of news and it, it's like candy, right? Like certain people can look at you and go, you are an idiot. And immediately your hairs stand up and it's like you're offended, right? But then there's that person in your life who looks at you and goes, you know, you are you're kind of an idiot, you know? And you go, hit me again, Ike, you know? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you just want them to, it's like, gosh, that felt so good. Let's imagine this morning that we're in a family meeting and we're going to receive the loving encouragement, the loving rebuke and correction of our Heavenly Father. In Revelation 3.19, it says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Turn from your ways. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit on my throne, just as also I conquered and sat down on my father's throne. Let anyone who hears, anyone who has ears, let him hear and listen what the Spirit says. The Father's discipline is always out of love, and it's always to break us from the many poor habits we have formed as children in a broken and selfish and self-seeking world. Uh, The Bible in Ephesians calls us children of wrath, anyone who is lost and self-worshipping. Anyone who does not know the Lord and His freedom, His desire is that we repent of our old life and receive His invitation unto new life. In this new and eternal relationship, it's one that's in Revelations illustrated by a meal or an eternal fellowship with the Father. As we enter today's text, if you have yet to hear it in Paul's writing, then I hope that you'll listen clearly to the loving correction, encouragement, and rebuke of their spiritual father as he writes to the church at Colossae. So in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, it says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. In regard to food or drink, or in the matters of festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by their empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold onto the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with the growth of God. If you died with Christ... To the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish and being used up. There are human commands, human doctrines. Although they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion 
or false humility or severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in actually curbing self-indulgence. I want to start by this statement. The world's judgment today is based on what it sees. The world's judgment is based on what they see, what, what they watch people do and how they can categorize and put people in a certain box. But we as believers, we are based on who we are in. We're based on who we're in. It is not about what we do. It's about what the Father has gifted us in Jesus. And due to his work and the identity we have in Jesus, we have freedom. We are free. We are free of the old way of life in which we were slaved to this world. We are free of all of its, its philosophies, all its tendencies, and all of its confusion. Today, I want to say this is the first thing that Paul's trying to point out as he writes in this passage. He's saying this is a constant challenge. The freedom that you have in Jesus is going to constantly be challenged. There's a sufficiency that we're to have in Christ. But as you've been hearing him say subtly and not so subtly through this book as we've been walking through it, the tendency was to always to add to the gospel. It was always gospel plus. It was gospel plus something else. And he challenges this. In fact, MacArthur wrote his commentary like this. He said, Today, with advanced media capability, there is an onslaught of false teaching in un- of unprecedented proportions. On every side, the f- sufficiency of Jesus Christ is either openly or implicitly denied. False philosophy has infiltrated the church under the guise of psychology, which all too often is viewed as a supplement to God's word. Many lean towards mysticism, claiming to receive visions or extra-biblical revelations. Others are legalists, equating holiness with observing a list of cultural taboos or do's and don'ts. Either way, it's happening on both ends of the spectrum, and it's happening in an extremity. We must practice balance, and that's what Paul's trying to remind us here to do, to come back to the center. He says the substance is Jesus, and out of him we build upon our knowledge and our practices. But it starts and ends and will always be in Jesus. See, churches in the Lycus Valley, like Laodicea here, or Colossae here in the Phrygian Valley, were being told constantly that Jesus was not enough, that Something needed to be added. They needed more. And I don't know if you've heard it in your culture today, but you and I are up against this same kind of challenge. The specific group in Colossae, these heretics believed that they were privy to a higher spiritual knowledge, some illumination or revolution that exceeded what we know of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. They had a disdain for anyone. I want you to listen clearly. This is prevalent today in our churches. They had a disdain for anyone who was unenlightened, quote-unquote less spiritual, simplistic Christians. Has anyone ever met or played the role of the religiously or spiritually arrogant, judging everyone around you for not being, quote-unquote, deep enough? You know what I'm talking about? Anyone come up against this? This is scary. This is a scary thought because I've, I've had so many people come out of lessons, even though that I've those that I've taught myself and the guy, you know, I got nothing out of that. And, and here's the thing. No matter how well the delivery is, if someone opens the Bible, the scriptures, and the word of God, Jesus, the center thereof is speaking by the power of his spirit. And here's the thing. The, the delivery might be weak. I'm not saying that it couldn't. I've seen it. I've done it. 
But when that is opened and you say, I got nothing out of that, who does that speak to more to, you or the deliverer? It speaks more to you, the hearer, the arrogant. And so I want us to think about it. These false teachers were offering a new gospel. With their flowery mixed bag of pagan philosophy, Jewish legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism, they were taking in this day everything that they could potentially, telling Jews to return to their, their dietary laws, return to the practices of your calendar, return to the practices of how you handle your weekly calendar, your day, abusively teaching Sabbath, and, and return to a way of, of worshiping more than just one God because you, you want to make sure that you're okay. They were a, like big blanketed coexist bumper sticker universalism didn't just start in our day it's been prevalent and paul's fighting it here whether meal structure dietary laws or calendar festivals or unscriptural practices like abusively teaching sabbath due to this newfangled doctrine people were being enticed back to a religious structure and practice that existed in their old lives not in their new one Not in the one in Christ. So here it is. Listen. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in matters of festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance itself is Christ. Verse 17. A shadow, a shadow has no substance. You know that, right? Paul's pointing this. You know shadows have no substance, but rather they are cast because of something that is and has substance. The substance or the reality is Christ. Shadows point to an object of being of substance. This is what Paul is saying. All these things that we practiced, whether in your old life in Judaism, were simply a foreshadowing to can be completed in Jesus, who is the substance, the object, and the reality. Let me challenge what the scripture would say to each of these points that he's made here. For example, to food regulations. In John 6.41, it says that Christ is the bread of heaven come down. You remember Jesus himself said, not, we cannot eat by bread and water alone, but by every word that what? Professes from the mouth of God. That we have to find sustaining truth in, in God and in his word, which is Jesus. To the Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. This is talking about festivals that meet annually on the calendar. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is in fact our Passover. To the issue of uh, weekly practices. And by the way, I want to say this. I practice a Seder annually. I celebrate Passover. However, if you do not start in Christ, you do not find the completion thereof. And I hope to talk about it a little bit today. I practice a Sabbath weekly because I truly believe that the scriptures say that we are to Deuteronomy, observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. Exodus, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So if you are to remember and observe, that means that you should have a pinpointed day where it's not just a day off, a day where you sit and you specifically, I have a liturgy I have to walk through just to get my mind focused on what Jesus is trying to say and to silence the voices trying to vie for my attention. I have to sit and listen, and when I do, out of it, I remember what God said for the next three days, and I anticipate for the three days leading to it what God might say. So I do practice a Sabbath, but in Hebrews 4.8 it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has entered from his own works, not uh, just, as God did, just as God did from us. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, 
so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. What he's saying is this, that Jesus is the place that we find rest. It says, cost in his work alone. Come to me who are heavy burdened and I will give you what? Rest. The gospel plus doctrine was tempting since new life. Faith solely in grace and the grace of Jesus' work in us was proving to mean extreme persecution and even in their day death. That's our second point. You've got to recognize that this church and every church in the New Testament was up against constant calamity. Paul, the writer himself of this book, said that I was shipwrecked, I was imprisoned, I was beaten, all for the sake, and eventually would be martyred for the sake of the gospel. These pages that we're reading from are written in the blood of the apostles. This is not a joke. I was, Heather and I were talking about someone who had walked through our house and they pointed out the large artwork we have in our home, and one of which is just big and bold and it says Christ, and there's a picture there. And, and they, they were like, you know, you probably ought to think about removing that artwork, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of personal. And we were like, were we just persecuted? Because that's what, like, that's what, like, first world persecution looks like, right? Persecuted because you have artwork that says Jesus on it. Listen, these people were paying with their lives. If you align yourself with me, Jesus said, the world will hate you. There's a cultural message that is counter. It's constantly confusing. That's our third point. There is constant confusion because culture's message doesn't add up. It cannot be, hey, think for yourself, but as only as long as you agree with me. Amen? Hey, be yourself, but agree with me. Otherwise, I hate you. If you're not, tr- if you're not sure, look at social media. Read Facebook. Look how many people defriend you because of who you voted for. Listen. This is not a day and time when the church can allow itself to get caught in cultural matters like that, where messages will pull away from the centrality and the importance of the gospel. The world is constantly confusing. But in 1 Corinthians 14, it said that Jesus is not the author of confusion. We're racked with wretched false humility. And i got to say, this is evident within the church. There's an old book, maybe you've read it. Charles Dickens wrote David Copperfield years and years and years ago. But I went back to it because around chapter 16, there was one character in it. How many of you, I mean, many of you, just humor me. Charles Dickens, like David Copperfield. So, okay, so a few of us, good, great. Okay, Uriah Heep was a character developed in that book. And remember, one of my favorite lines, he says, I am well aware that I am the humblest person going. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That person that's like, no, 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 come on. No, no, please, please, come on, please, please, no. Like, the humblest person going. He, there is a, a false humility that has wrecked and led to constant confusion for those who are finding freedom in Jesus. And the church needs to watch this practice thereof. It needs to watch this practice of the worship of angels. Paul fights this because this was prevalent in Colossians and the entire region to as late as 739 AD. This was a big deal. I'm just going to use the Bible to see what it says about the worship of angels. First Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one meteor between God and man. That is Jesus Christ. Matthew 4.10 says, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. If you remember in Isaiah 6, his account of his own calling, when Isaiah was called to serve the Lord, what was happening with the cherubim and seraphim? 
They were flying around the altar of God with two wings they covered their face, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew, and they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. By, their, by his testimony, angels themselves worship the Lord. Revelations 19.10, John said it like this. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So at this, I fell at his feet in order to worship him, meaning the angel. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, with your brothers, with your sisters. So hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus alone. These notions, whether aesthetic practices or spiritual enlightenment at another level or the worship of angels, come from an empty and unspiritual mind, Paul says. This is man constantly and continually overcomplicating the magnificent and simple practice of trusting an unearthly and a supernatural message that was found in Jesus alone. You see, when you survey the world and you can find no one who is not tainted by the sin of this broken and self-seeking world. When you recognize that everyone was born into this world with the same problem, then there is no one that has pure enough blood to save it. So God had to come himself. God had to, the Father had to send his Son to be that sacrifice for us when we could not save Ourselves. The word is consistently Christ, and there's clarity therein. True growth, as verse 19 says. Let me read it to you. It says, The head held together, nourished by the ligaments, tells us about John 15, just like John 15 does, that a branch cannot grow if it is not connected to the vine. Listen, Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you. If you want to grow and bear fruit, you must stay connected to the vine. And that's what Paul's up against here. They're having a tendency to have their attention swayed towards other things, which is only confusion. They were already up against life and death circumstances. He was challenging them to stay focused because you're never going to not have your attention try to be vied or led away from Jesus, but you have to stay connected. And when you do, when you do and like by chance, because you will slip up. When you do, for instance, relapse, recognize the point four here, that constant growth comes by relapse. Don't find yourself going, oh man, I can't believe I'm here again. He goes, look, look around you, recognize that you may have gone two steps and gone, gotten back like knocked back three, but you've been here before. Look around you. You can do it. Verses 20 say, For if you died with Christ in the elements of this world, then live, why do you live still as if you belong to the world? Why do you submit to the regulations they try to put on you? Why do you try to handle, taste, touch? All these regulations refer to what was destined to perish. They're human commands and doctrines. The reason that Jesus had to come as a fulfillment for the law is because the law could not be kept. He said, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of the entire thing. It was far too heavy for any one individual to carry. So Jesus came and relieved us of it. That's why he is our Sabbath rest. That's why we can find true peace in him. How many of you remember the story of Luke 15 and the prodigal son? How he looks at his father and says, I'd rather you be dead. I don't want to wait for your death to get my inheritance. And by the way, he's the younger son, so he's getting the smaller portion, one third. The rest of it, the larger portion went to the older son. 
But he says, I'd rather you be dead. I'm taking my inheritance. I'm gone. He goes, he squanders it in another field, another country, finds himself face down in a pigsty when it's all gone. And, and he comes to a sentence and goes, my father's servants are treated so better than, than I am. Let me go back. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, but, but maybe he'll let me serve as a servant. As he comes, humbly walking back, repenting of his squandering, he comes and he finds his father running before he can even break the plane of his own property. And the father falls on his neck, kisses him, places his robe around him, his ring upon his finger, and sandals upon his feet. He says, kill the fatted calf. My son who was lost has now returned. He's home. And he celebrates that return as if to say, all of heaven rejoices when one sinner is found, when one comes home, back into right relationship with the Father. John 14, 6 says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Because Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. I love that picture, though. He covers that individual in the robe as if to say he covers him in the family colors. It's as if, like, when the Father looks at us, he mostly just sees his Son, who we are covered in. When he places the ring upon his finger, he says, Song of Solomon, a seal upon the arm as as if a seal upon the heart, a symbol of where my heart belongs is to this family, to this father. Sandals just to be kind because he was without and killed the fatted calf to celebrate. But who, do you remember who had trouble with this celebration? The older son. I've been here. I've done. I've done everything you asked. And then judgment passes judgment on his brother who was lost but now is found. The father goes, look, everything I have is yours He squandered his inheritance, is gone. There's nothing more for him. I'm just glad he's back in the fold. But you, you were faithful. You get it all. You've not even killed a squandered calf for me. You didn't even, you've never thrown a party for me. How dare you? And in self-entitlement, he likens the older brother to the religious leader of that day, the Pharisee. And he says, don't be like that. Revelation 19 references the wedding feast of the Lamb. (laughs) Speaks to the issue of dining with our Lord. There's a table invitation set. He says, Lo, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. And it, it really points to something that was prevalent during the, new, the explosion of the New Testament church in the apostolic age. Do you remember in Acts 2.42 when we read about what was prevalent in the church, how it was moving? Remember, They were committed to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and encouragement. Let me be clear. That was happening around a table. The forefathers of the New Testament called it table fellowship. It's where Jesus, I mentioned it last week, but I'll go further. In the Gospel of Luke, you see the methodology of Jesus is around a table. He's either leaving, coming to, or going to a meal every time. 
And it was in said meal that he sought to seek and save the lost. He set the table so that they could come. It was practice, and this was excellent teaching for, for anyone who had come out of Judaism. Because I said, I practice a Seder annually. In that Seder at the Passover, what happens is the father takes the seat at the head of the table and serves as leader in that celebration. He reads from the Haggadah or the telling, which is a book that leads you through step by step. And there's incremental, very intentional teachings through every element in the dinner. But what's interesting is, is what sets the entire tone. There are four questions read by the children of the night. And those questions are, sound something like this. On every other night, we eat of all the vegetables. Why only the bitter herbs on this night? On every other night, we sit, but why do we recline on this night? This was important because, you see, it was an old rabbinical teaching that, that was found in rabbinical training, but it's also found in the ministry of Jesus. How many times you read the Gospels and you hear a, go- a question given to Jesus, and every time Jesus responds with a question? This was a sophisticated way that rabbis taught. They wanted to expose their own knowledge, but they wanted to expose that the person already had the answer themselves. And they wanted to pronounce and continue a curiosity in the things of God. So the table set. My question to everyone here today is how often are we denying the invitation that has been given to us by the Father? Maybe you are here and you've already accepted the invitation unto salvation, but you've been denying the invitation to come back to the table and sup with Him. To hear of his ways, to ask questions, to find why he would respond a certain way while in this world you respond completely differently. And we've been talking about how as a family who is in the Lord, we have a ministry of reconciliation, Paul wrote. That we are called to not only be reconciled ourselves, but we are called to reconcile others. My question to you is how often are you setting the table for someone else? How often are you playing the role of the Father and creating space within your home with family and friends for them to come and ask questions about what it means to follow God? What it means to come into relationship with Him, fellowship with Him, and because of your example, allow them to come sit at that table and that ministry continues. Fathers, there is a personal challenge today, or leaders of homes, there's a personal challenge today. Culture has stolen something from us. Between running from work to our, sometimes our second hustle, I mean, you know, today we get side hustles, right? You know what I'm talking about? You're moonlighting somewhere. How many of us, we run from one job to the second job, to our kids' uh, travel ball, to this practice, to this event, to this performance, whatever it is. Let me ask you, and I, I, I don't want a show of hands. I just want you to think internally. How many times a week are you not around the table with your family? And you've fallen privy to culture's message that you need to be somewhere else. Maybe today our challenge should be this. That one, we, in, we accept the invitation of the Father to come to His table because Jesus wants to dine with us. And it's good practice for what we'll be doing in eternity at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But maybe that second challenge should be, maybe this is the loving rebuke of the Father to us. 
we should take back our table. Maybe we should get to the place where we start to design once a week again in our homes, whether that be with your family or with your friends, a place where you are dining and setting the table for those in your life that God has held responsible to ask questions about your faith and to really worship in the way that God intended through the methodology that we see Jesus practice. We say that we want to practice the way of Jesus. Well, here it is. How many of us need to take back a meal or two or more a, a week every, every week trying to sacredly protect a night where you as the leader and minister of reconciliation are reconciling those in your life back to the one? Because you've accepted an invitation, you're extending it to them. So this morning I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask us to consider this. I want to say this, happy Father's Day to all the fathers. But fathers, maybe you're the one that needs to lead out in this in your home. And families, maybe, maybe you have opportunity to be gracious with that father or with that leader. How many of you know that God's the God of a million chances, right? Maybe you need to extend some grace today because dad just was told that he needs to fight for his table that's been stolen from him by culture. And maybe today he wants to repent of that. Maybe he wants to look at you and say, I want to get this back. You say, Dad, it's okay. We love you. Great. We want to come back with you. Please lead us. Please teach us. Please take up the mantle that God has given you. And we'll follow.